James 3, 1 through 12. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what he says is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses, we make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praises and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning. Peace be with you. It's great to see you. Welcome to Trinity. Welcome back. If this is your home church, welcome if this is your first time here. We're really glad you're here. And happy anniversary. Two years. We did it. Today marks two years for us as a congregation gathering on Sunday mornings. And so, uh, you know, anniversaries matter, uh, especially at the beginning, you know, in any marriage or dating relationship, whatever it is, anniversaries matter in the beginning so much because that's where so many of the challenges are. And for us, you know, we have been a, a relatively low drama church. I would say borderline no drama. Honestly, it's kind of great. Um, I'm sure we'll have drama in our future at some point, but we've had this sweet couple of years, uh, but they haven't been without challenges. You know, we've had our, our ups and downs. We've had uh, key leaders that have moved away for work and for school. Uh, I think we've met in four different places now over those last two or three years. Uh, and then we've had more than six months of living and, and planting a church through COVID, which is not exactly how you, you draw it up when you want to start uh, a new organization, church, or, or business. And, and yet through it all, God has provided so incredibly well for us. And so to hear these, these testimonies of how God has worked in the lives of a few people and knowing that that is representative of what he's doing in the lives of so many people here. We don't tell them to say nice things about Trinity, but it's always encouraging uh, when they do express a gratitude to you. So I hope you're encouraged by those stories. And so thank you. Thank you to our members, attenders, our leaders, our servants, those who have invested so much time, so much energy. You have, have continued to serve. Uh, you've been giving. You've been doing so much to make this church a reality. And so I hope you can celebrate this morning with us. Now, before we get into James chapter 3, where we're going this morning, there was a book that was published uh, about a year and a half ago, and the title is like the greatest title of any book, I think. It's called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. 
All right, 10 arguments for why you should delete your social media accounts right now. The author, Jaron Lanier, uh, he's, he's a big name in Silicon Valley. He is credited with inventing virtual reality, created the first virtual reality company back in the 80s. And so he's a millionaire or a billionaire, you know, several times over. And so he's been this big name in Silicon Valley for decades. But in the past 10 years, he's basically become a tech hermit. Uh, he's left Silicon Valley and he has left basically all forms of technology behind. And so he conducts classical music and writes books about deleting social media accounts. Let me give you just six of his 10 arguments for why you should delete social media. Number one, social media is undermining truth. Number two, social media is making what you say meaningless. Number three, social media is making you a jerk. And that's my word, not his. His isn't child-friendly. Number four, social media is destroying your capacity for empathy, to, to understand and appreciate the feelings of others. Number five, social media is making you unhappy. And then number six, social media hates your soul. Pretty strong reasons, each chapter being backed by research and by science. The main problem, is, as Lanier sees it, and he understands the technology and its effect on us as people, is that social media it kind of capitalizes on our worst features as people. It, it capitalizes on our fear of loneliness and our, our desire to be connected, but by only projecting the best possible versions of ourselves. It also focuses and, and it, it, it thrives on our ability to become addicted to something very, very quickly. And so we get a little dopamine hit. If you're on social media, every time you see a like, every time you, you get a comment or something positive, it literally works the same as basically any other drug in the world. It exposes you to information that's designed to draw maximum emotion out of you, whether it's positive or negative. And it tracks every move you make on its apps so it can literally sense when you're happy, when you're angry, when you're shopping, and then it'll target ads directly to meet your emotional state in that moment. Lanier writes, Welcome to the cage that goes everywhere with you. We're being hypnotized little by little by technicians we can't see for purposes we don't know. We're all lab animals now. Now Lanier in the book, he, he uh, interviews several executives from Facebook in particular. And the first president of Facebook, Sean Parker, he says, We were exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. We all understood this consciously, and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. A former vice president at Facebook said, what we've created is destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. I think we all knew it in the back of our minds. It's eroding the core foundation of how people behave. I feel tremendous guilt. I don't really have a solution for it. I just don't use it anymore. I haven't for years. And so kind of summarizing, Lanier writes that quitting social media is the most finely targeted way to resist the insanity of our times. He's saying that merely not fully engaging in social media is about the most counter-cultural, uh, you know, the most the most incredible form of resistance that we could take, the most subversive thing that we could do in our culture, it's just not going overboard on social media. 
Now, why is that? I think it's because social media has become so significant for our culture. And if, if you're like, well, that's just a young person thing, the reality is that more, there are more people over 40 on Facebook and more than 50% of Facebook use is by those over 40 than by under 40. So it's not just a, an age thing. But social media taps into something that is so profoundly true of us as human beings, and it exploits that. And that's that words matter so much. Information matters so much. Content matters. Truth matters. Silence matters. Our words connect us to one another. Our words connect our thoughts to actions. Our words demonstrate what really matters to us. But it's also true that the words that we consume, what we take in by reading and by, by listening and by conversations, what we consume will eventually consume us. You know that phrase, you are what you eat? It's, it's really true in terms of words. You, you will be consumed by what you consume. And so what we're looking at this morning in James chapter 3, we're finding the wisdom of Jesus being applied to our words, to information, to truth, to content, to wisdom, to silence. And we have 12 verses that's really a, a warning about how we consume words and how we use those same words. It gives us a framework for consuming and using words in two different ways. And there's only two points in the sermon today. It's the power of words to hurt and the power of words to heal. Let me pray for us and we'll get into the, into the text. Oh, Father, I'm, I'm so thankful for this morning. I'm so thankful for the stories of grace that have been shared. I thank you for, for each person here who has been a part of the founding of this church. And Lord, once again, we commit it to you. This church belongs to you. Father, as we approach the, the topic of words and of speech and of language and how deeply this, this affects us as human beings, would you open our eyes to the, to the beauty of your word? to the power of your wisdom and your speech. Lord, would you not just inform us, but would you transform us by your word. And to soften our, our hearts to James' message, O oh Lord, and continue to build us as a community that seeks your wisdom and seeks your life in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so first of all, the power of words to hurt. The big thesis statement of James Three of this passage comes in verse 2. It's a profound statement. He says, Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And so if you can control what you say, you control your entire body. Now, In the, in the Hebrew culture, body is, is sort of a symbol for your whole life. And so what James is saying is that if you can control your tongue, if you can control your speech, then your entire life will be controlled as a result. And then the inverse is true. If you can't control your speech, then you've lost control of your entire life. Now, uh, think about when you go to the doctor. I went to the doctor maybe a month ago. I was having these sinus uh, headaches and migraines. If you Google anything right now, it's like a COVID symptom, right? Uh, and then speaking of social media, if you go on Facebook, there's like stories of like, I had a sinus headache and then it was COVID, and then I died. You know, there's something that's like immediately COVID, immediately death. And so I go to the doctor, hoping that it's not COVID. She's like, you have a headache, that's not COVID. Um, but it was interesting. She looks at my eyes, she looks at my ears, and she checks my tongue, you know. They always check your tongue. 
And the reality is, is that the, the tongue can tell a lot about what's going on inside the body. It's a small body part, but it, it reveals what's going on. And so if, if your tongue is healthy, chances are the rest of your body is healthy. If your tongue is unhealthy, chances are you have some kind of infection. And so the tongue is, is a way of revealing the entire body, and that's what James is saying about our speech and about our tongue and the way we use our words. Now, if you say, how can something so small have such a big impact? James actually gives three different examples in the text. He says, first, we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, and we can turn the whole animal. Second, he says, take ships as an example, so large and driven by strong winds, but they can be steered by a small rudder. And then third, likewise, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a single spark. So our words are, are that spark, and the, the fire that moves beyond it is the life that we live, and the, the tongue is that rudder that can turn the entire ship of our lives. James is simply teaching what Jesus has already said to go back to Matthew 12, which we did a couple weeks ago. This is a powerful passage that Jesus speaks. He says, The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good that's stored up within him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil that's stored up in him. Now listen to this verse. I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Now if that's not a terrifying verse, I don't know what is. But he finishes, For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is saying on the, on the day of judgment we'll have to give an account for every word that is spoken, both positive and negative, the empty words, the untruthful words. And it's even more severe for the pastors and teachers because the very first verse that we have in this chapter is not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That wasn't in like the interview process for seminary. They left that one out. You find out about it like year three. That's all right. But Jesus is saying, James is saying that words matter. And in particular, our words matter so much because God is a speaking God. When God wants to create the universe, when He creates the entire cosmos and all of life, He does so by simply speaking. His words create reality. And we're made in God's image, which means that our words can have a similar power and function in our lives. Verse 9, it says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. And so being in God's image, we have the ability to create reality, and we have the ability, because of our sin and our brokenness, to also alter reality, to, to change what's, what's true and how things are perceived and how they're received by other people. You can probably think back to words that have been spoken over you at different points in your life that shape the way you view yourself now. A harsh word, a negative word spoken over a child, they absorb that into the deepest place of their being, and they, that stays with them for years and decades. Words make or break a marriage. Words shape our communities. Words direct societies. And when words mean nothing, they're there can be no society. There can be no community. When words are empty, when they're meaningless, when they're always untruthful, you can't have a real community. And so words are so important 
and yet controlling them is so difficult. Verse 8, James says, No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. All right, so he's saying that, that our tongue is full of poison. What are, what are the words that can become poisonous? And, and I think there's at least three different categories of ways that our words can be poisonous and bring about harm in the life of other people. The first category is untruthful words. Untruthful words work like poison in the lives of our own souls and in the lives of other people. James and, and Jesus keep coming back to truthfulness, to honesty, over and over and over again. True righteousness is consistently shown as being, being true, being honest, being clear with our speech. Now, most of us don't outright lie. I don't know that I'm like regularly telling like just complete blatant lies. But think about untruthful language is so much more than that. Think about exaggeration. Exaggeration is like literally my spiritual gift, you know, like negative spiritual gift. I'm a three on the Enneagram. They're sometimes called the achiever. I call them the exaggerator. I mean, whatever it is, I, I, and I don't even mean to, it just naturally happens. Like I will look at this room and think there's about 150 people here. And that's just true to how my brain operates. That's the gift and the curse. But how often do we exaggerate? How, how well did you do on that test? How much of that project is done? So, so slight, but it's untruthful. I think about strategic omission. How we can strategically omit a, a, a part of the truth that, that will lead somebody to believe something else. So, for instance, I played basketball at Mizzou. It was, was years ago. Mizzou was a top five program. I played basketball at Mizzou in the rec center on Fridays afternoons. You know, like there's a big difference when I leave out that little phrase that's like I shot around with my buddies in the gym. But we can do that as well. We can leave out some bit of information that would make us look a little bit less glorious than if we had just left it out. I mean, think about spin, the way we, we, we kind of spin things around in an untruthful manner to make them seem better than they are. Or we say, you know, I really meant to do that. I know it looks bad, but I actually had this great reasoning behind it. How much of our culture, how much of advertising is spinning something so that if we'll just look at it in a different way, it's all great. I was listening to a, a Tim Keller sermon this week, and he says that untruthfulness, it creates this alternate reality. It means that other people around you don't have the correct information, and so they begin to live a lie, and they live in this alternate reality. And any bit of truthful untruthfulness is a way of exploiting other people. And so the first category is untruthful words. The second category is unloving words. So you can say the truth. You can say something that is completely true, but you can do it in the wrong way. You can do it in a way that's, that's unloving. You can do it in a way that it's full of the wrong, uh, the wrong timing. You can do it with the wrong tone of voice. And this is typically the, the error of immaturity. You know, the people who, who are saying, well, that's, you know, that's just the truth. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It, it, you know, it hurts your feelings, but that's what's true. It's like, okay, but you're probably saying the truth at the wrong time, in the wrong way, and with the wrong tone of voice. Perhaps it's not the truth that hurts, it's the way you've delivered it or, or the goal of your heart and how you've spoken the words. James says in verse 10, Out of the same mouth come praise and come cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. In other words, all of your speech should be filled with love. And so we have untruthful words, we have unloving words. And I think the third category I would give is unspoken words. 
Words that you don't even say at all that, that you should have said. See, the poison of sin doesn't just come out in our speech, but also in our silence. When we don't defend others, when we don't speak up for, for justice, or we don't give the correct information, when we don't confront others, if we see a, a believing friend going wrong or being untruthful or unloving, and we don't provide that, that gentle, Jesus-like confrontation that brings them back. When we don't encourage others, if, if we hear somebody's pain, but we just don't have the time for it and we don't say a word. If we're with an unbelieving friend and there's an opportunity to share with them the hope that's in God's love and we don't say anything, these unspoken words work like poison in our lives and in the lives of others. Our, our words, our words not spoken, our silence, that often does more long-term harm than our careless words. There's a, a discipleship curriculum called Sonship. It, it's put out by uh, a group called World Harvest Mission, and they have all these little spiritual assignments uh, that go along with this, um, this curriculum. And one week is called the Tongue Assignment. And what you have to do is keep track of every word you say for an entire day and then mark which ones are, are prideful or are, are boasting or exaggeration. It's a, it's a brutally difficult test. Even preparing for this sermon made me naturally more aware of each and every word that I'm speaking. Not just when I'm in front of you, not just when I'm in you know, meetings with other people, but, but at home with my wife and with my kids, when I'm, when I'm texting an old friend, whatever it is, how many of my words are, are not 100% truthful? How many are not 100% loving? How many times have I, have I failed to bring about encouraging words in the life of somebody else? I mean, I can't even go an hour without regretting something that I've said or should have said. So great hurt is caused by words because they're so powerful. Our words are, are filled with so much meaning, so much power that they can cause so much harm. But there's good news, and that's the second half. That's the power of words to heal. Verse 11, James says, Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt, a salt spring produce fresh water. And so what James is saying, he's actually echoing those words from Matthew 12 again, where Jesus says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Out of the overflow of what's going on in our heart, words come pouring out. And so our words reveal as a, as a kind of indicator what's going on in our own hearts. There's an old quote, I think it comes from Elizabeth Elliot. She was the missionary to Ecuador and a writer. She said, if you bump a full water glass, whatever's within will come out whether it's fresh water or dirty water. And so being bumped doesn't change the water that's inside the glass, but you only really realize it until it's bumped. And she's talking there about suffering. What's within will finally come out in our speech. And so we actually have a, a kind of double strategy for the healing and the transformation of our words. There's two different ways that we can work so that our speech is, is redeemed and reformed. And they're actually both back in James one. If we go back a couple weeks, James chapter 1, starting in verse 19, he said this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so that's the first strategy, which is to control your words, and it'll change your heart. The very next verse, 21, says this, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And so that's the second strategy, which is to change your heart and your words will follow. And so first of all, the first strategy of controlling your speech and your heart will come behind it. Listen to your words and, and work backwards. When you look back on your speech throughout the day, things that you've spoken, things that you haven't spoken, what does that tell you about the condition of your soul? What does it look like to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry? We have these three kinds of hurtful speech, untruthful, unloving, and unspoken. What's brilliant is that Paul takes these three things and he puts them positively in Ephesians 4. He says, speak truth and love. Speak truth and love. So instead of untruthfulness, truth. Instead of unloving speech, love. And instead of unspoken words, actually speak truth and love. I mean, it's a few words, but it's one of the most powerful verses that if we can get it into our minds, if we can get it into our hearts, if we can get it into our lives, if we could actually speak truth and love, what an incredible testimony that would be. What an incredible mark of a, of a mature person, an incredible mark of an entire community if they can learn to speak truth and love. And so that's the first thing. Control your tongue and your heart will be followed or your heart will be controlled. And then the second is the inverse. If you focus on your heart, then your tongue will also be controlled. And so it's not one or the other. You focus on both and, and both work together. But remember that what fills your heart controls what you say with your mouth. And in that James 1 passage, he says, get rid of evil, how? By humbly accepting the word that was planted within you. In other words, find healing in God's words. Accept the, the planting of God's word deep within you as it takes root and as it begins to bear fruit in your life. And it says that that word can save you. God's words, as it takes root in your heart, it can save you. What would it look like to have a steady diet of God's Word in your own life? Now, as I said, this speech, it's, a, it's an indicator, it's a diagnostic for where our heart is. And if anything other than God's love is primary in your heart, your speech will reveal it. Whenever you're defending yourself, whenever you're elevating yourself, return to God's love. As I do that tongue assignment and I find things that are untruthful, unloving, and unspoken, Ask, what is it about God's love that I haven't fully absorbed yet? Where do I not fully believe Him? Where do I not fully trust Him? Where have I not seen God's love and His acceptance of me take root in my life? But the other side of this is looking at what we consume. Not just our words as they're spoken, but the, the words that we consume. What are we consuming throughout the day and what is it doing to our souls? Uh, returning to social media, I know some of those quotes from the beginning were like, man, I want to throw my phone out the window into a street. Um, I'm not 100% against social media. You know, I can't tell you like, you know, from Scripture that you shouldn't use social media or anything like that. But I do think that we need to be aware of all that we're consuming. 
Be aware of the, the effect that it can have on us. I, I read, I looked up some stats, uh, and the average U.S. adult that has access to the Internet, which is almost everybody, the average U.S. adult spends an average of two hours and 22 minutes on social media alone each day, which comes out to 16 and a half hours a week. Now, I don't have reliable stats on, on how many hours or minutes the average believer spends reading Scripture, but I'm going to guess that it's less than 16 hours a week. It is for me. And so for me, I, again, I'm not giving a, a law. I'm not trying to place a heavy burden. I'm not trying to make us like the church that doesn't do social media or something. But based on my experience, you know, I didn't grow up with this. Uh, thankfully, this came later in my life. I think I, I can help you and, and say, what does it look like to have an appropriate use of social media? And for me, there's a few things that I recommend. First of all, use social media on a computer and not your phone. I don't really know why that is. I don't know if there's something psychological going on, but there's something about social media on a phone that's so much more addictive than it is on a computer. Maybe it's harder to navigate on the computer, whatever it is. But, but also when I'm on my computer, if I'm doing something on, on Facebook or Twitter on my computer, I'm typically out in public. I have to go through the work of getting out my laptop. And then there's, there's an extra accountability that I'm probably not going to be stalking somebody on my computer at a coffee shop. I'm not going to look at inappropriate content. But all of that is so much easier on a smartphone. Number two, limit your social media use to a few times a day. Maybe there's a period of time where you want to say, I'll do social media, but only between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. Maybe, maybe you take a social media Sabbath, a day a week where you just don't do it at all. And then third, I would recommend taking periodic breaks from it, whether it's a year, I mean, sorry, not a year, a week, a month, maybe it's a year. I would actually enjoy taking a year off from it. But if after a, a week, after a few weeks, you come back to it and, and you've really missed it, you know, maybe there's a way that you can redeem it, you can use it in a more positive way. Again, there's no judgment here. This is not a new law, but what I want for you is fullness of life. What, what Casey and I, what the leaders of this church want for you is to be consuming things that are so good for your soul that God's love just comes pouring out of you in your speech. Uh, both Casey and I, we only use our social media kind of in those ways for, for work and then maybe posting pictures of our kids. I've been on an extended social media break. It'll continue probably until after the election. I have a, I have a newspaper subscription, a local one and a national one. I read some scripture. I don't even do podcasts right now. For me, I'm, I'm trying to limit the amount of words that I consume and, and to try to take the words that I am consuming and make them be as positive and as life-giving as possible. Now, the one area where I do need to grow, if my wife's listening to this at home, I'm consuming way too much sports content right now. The ESPN.com, I'm shutting it down. All right, I'm just about to cut it out completely right after the Tour de France NBA playoffs in the NFL season. It's all, <laughs> I'm totally scaling back. And as we've said before, we've, we've said this, we'll say it again. There's so much content in the world and there's, there's so little wisdom. Even in the church, there's so much information and there's so little transformation. What we need is not more information, it's not more content. What we need is, is the Word of God and the Spirit of God filling our hearts. I do think it's significant that Jesus came into a time and a place, and He could have come at any point in human history. He came into a, a very simple culture. 
And so it might be that practicing the way of Jesus together means less interaction with technology. You know, I'm not like anti-electricity, but I do think we need to be aware of all the technology that we're using and its impact on our spiritual lives. Ezekiel 3, when God comes to the prophet and calls him into the prophetic ministry, God says to Ezekiel, speaking of the Old Testament law, eat this book, then go and speak to the people of Israel. Eat this book I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. Like Israel or Ezekiel, we, we need to eat the book that God has given us. We need to consume the words of God, his, his eternal, timeless word that he's laid out for us in the scriptures. That ought to be something that's a, a regular portion of our, our, our word diet. Whatever we're consuming, the words that we're consuming, scripture has to be an enormous part of that. You are what you eat. You become what you consume. And so finishing up, I was reminded that God, we only hear God speak audibly twice in the New Testament. Only twice does God audibly speak down on his people, speak words that all people can hear. And the first time is at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the Father, with a booming voice from heaven, says, This is my Son, whom I love, and in him I am well pleased. The second time that God speaks, it's almost the exact same words. It's at the transfiguration where Jesus is revealed in all of his glory. He's transformed into his full deity before a few of the disciples. And God speaks again from heaven saying, This is my Son whom I love, and in him I am well pleased. And then a good word for us, he says, Listen to him. I think it was primarily for Peter, but I think for all of us, listen to Jesus. And why this is such good news is because when Jesus died on the cross, yes, it was to, to pay for our sins. And when he was resurrected, yes, it was to, to give us new life. But most fundamentally, when Jesus came and he died and he rose again, it was to make us one with him. It was to connect us to Christ. It's called union with Christ. We become one with Jesus in salvation. And so what that means is that whatever is true of Christ is now true of us. When God looks at Christ, when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Because we're, we're joined to Jesus and we're, we're one with Jesus, that means any time that God looks down on us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Our, our careless and empty words are covered by the beautiful and the eternal words of Jesus. All the times that we've failed to speak up, they're covered by Jesus' words as he speaks up for those without a voice, whatever it is. All of our sins, all of our, our poor speech, it's all covered by the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus. And what that means and why that's such good news is that when the Father looks down from, from heaven on us, he's not, he's not holding like a clipboard that's like all of their good speech, all of their bad speech, and he's like checking off each mistake that we make. Instead, God the Father is looking down on us and seeing the perfection of Christ. And so God looks down on us and he says the same thing that he would speak over any of his children. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. 
I love him. I love her. And so God speaks this good word over his people. And wherever you're at today, however much you use social media, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you are what you eat. What you consume will consume you. And so take in the words of God. Take in the love of God that He has for you. And when God's love has so filled your heart, it'll come pouring out in, in transformed speech. But until then, the aim is to get the love of God into our hearts. Let's pray.